Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. This morning, uh, we wanted to continue our series on uh, greater hope and looking into the season of Advent. Advent means coming. It means arrival. And it anticipates the coming of Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ during the season. And uh, last week, we talked about how God and this greater hope, it's greater than our fears. This week, we want to talk about how God and this good news of Jesus Christ is greater than even our doubt, the questions that we have. And I wanted to start with a question for us this morning. You can turn to Luke uh, chapter 1. We'll be going through Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 5 to 25, and then we'll skip down and finish off with verses 57 to 66. And uh, for those of you who have the app, you can just open it up. The notes will be there so you can follow along. If you don't have a Bible, then look on with the person next to you, and hopefully they'll share with you. But I wanted to start with just a a thought for us this morning. Just think for a moment. Have you ever thought about how God can use doubts to actually grow your faith? Have you ever thought about that? How God can actually use doubts to help us grow our faith? And most of us initially, we might be like, wait, that doesn't make sense because doubt is the opposite of faith. Doubt is when we don't trust in God. So how is it that doubt could be somehow used by God to help increase our faith? Because when we think about doubt, it's usually something discouraging. It's usually frustrating. And whenever we have any sense of doubt, whether it's intellectual doubt or circumstantial doubt or spiritual doubt, we just want it to be over. We just want to be out of that situation as fast and as quickly as possible. And when it comes to doubt, there's no shortage of advice out there in the world for how to overcome doubt. Like if you just search YouTube and you search, like I was searching on YouTube for a couple hours last night, like videos on doubt on YouTube. I think there's so many videos, like motivational speakers and all this kind of stuff over and over again of like, this is how you can overcome your doubt. This is how, you know, self-doubt and all this kind of, it's going to be totally solved. I'm not going to share one of those motivational videos this morning, but I wanted to share two quick snippets. Uh, One's a little bit more lighthearted, a commercial of how to overcome your doubts, and they're going to promote their product through that. And then a second one, yeah, so they're using doubt to promote their product. Interesting. Uh, And then a second video, which will be right after it, of a guy named Novak Djokovic. Anyone know that guy? Some of you big tennis fans. He's, uh, He's been number one in the world in tennis for... Uh, many, many years, and then he kind of goes up and down with Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer. Eric and I are huge tennis fans, so we watch them all the time. So if you don't know who we're we're talking about, it's okay. Look it up later. But he is a big deal in the tennis world, and he shares a little bit of what helps him to overcome doubt. They're short clips, but I just want us to watch it and kind of make some observations for it. So let's watch it together. Our little advertisement for pro tennis afterward. (laughs) It's interesting, right? Friction pens, erase your doubts, and then all the thing, everything will be great after. So all you have to do is buy their pen and your doubts will be gone, right? Um, and then even Novak Djokovic, it's it kind of interesting because uh, I, I watch pro tennis, and then sometimes when you're watching from the top view, some of you who watch tennis, you know there's a top view, and when you're looking from a camera up high, doesn't look like the shots are going that hard or that fast. And you're like, oh, I could, I could beat that, right? And I played tennis for like 10 years. Like, I could take Novak, right? Um, no, sorry, this is my pride. <laughs> but it's interesting how even Novak, the top 
player in the world says, yeah, everyone deals with doubt. Everyone has some level of doubt. Even if you're the top player in the world, you're the pinnacle of your career, you're the top of your game, you have the highest ability in that industry, but yet there's still some self-doubt. And his solution was, you know what? Deal with it in a manner, in the best possible manner. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> that doesn't really help me. And then, I don't know if you caught it at the end, he said, oh, it just takes time and experience and somehow you can overcome. And usually motivational videos or speakers, it's some combination of overcome it, believe in yourself, don't give up, keep going. And then all of a sudden, you know, you pair it with that emotional uh, music in the background, and they have like those videos, like slow-mo of athletes like, going like this, and you're like, yeah, that's me. I I'm, I'm there, right? And I'm, I'm ready. And that's supposed to help us cure or overcome our doubts. But how many of us that actually worked? <laughs> maybe, maybe for like the next 10 minutes afterward, you're like, yes, I'm going to get back. I'm going to stop procrastinating. Or you know, I'm going to double back on my work. Or like, I'm going to, you know, my kids have been so frustrating. Been, there's been so many things that are hard, but I'm going to go at it again. But then somewhere along the lines, after that 10 minutes of motivation or so, then you just get back to the very same place that you started. And it seems like those doubts, you just can't escape it. You can't get through with it on your own. And it seems like whatever the world tries to suggest as a solution ends up falling short. And that's the, that's the difficulty of really dealing with doubts from a worldly perspective. It's because the solution to doubts from a worldly perspective always starts with being stronger, trying harder, going back and retracing your steps and doing it again, which is totally opposite from what God says for how we deal with doubt. Because what God says, and this is the gospel, that it's in our weaknesses and in our doubts that God actually develops our faith. And that's what we want to explore as we talk about uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth in this passage in Luke. And so I want to give us the one thing this morning. The one thing is that God exposes our doubt to elevate our faith. God exposes our doubt, and it's through that exposure of our doubt, that's how our faith will actually grow and develop. So hopefully you've turned to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start reading uh, by reading verses 5 through 18. And there's two points that I want to give us that helps us understand uh, this idea of God exposing our doubts to elevate our faith. The first point is what causes doubt? We have to understand what causes doubt for us to be able to say, you know what, God, I want you to expose those doubts so that it can elevate my faith. So uh, let's read verse 5 through 18 um, and in Luke 1. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside the, at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. 
and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So when we look through this passage, we immediately notice a couple things, and we're going to jump around through the chapter 1, verses 5 to 25 first, and then we're going to look into the remainder of the chapter, verses 25, uh, and then skip down to verse 56 to, uh, 57 to 66. And it's all about Zechariah and Elizabeth, this interaction between Zechariah and God. And this was actually right before Jesus was born. This is actually the story of the birth of John the Baptist. Some of you may know, but he was the person who God called to prepare the way of the Lord for Jesus before Jesus was actually born into this world. And so as we look into the story, these are the events leading up to the birth of, birth of Christ as we look into Advent. So the first question for us is, who is Zechariah and Elizabeth? Why were they important? Well, a couple of things we noticed in the first few verses that, number one, they were part of the priesthood. The priesthood was something established in the Old Testament uh, from the tribe of Levi, and they were the ones who were supposed to minister between the people and God. So they were representing, they did all the rituals, they did all the sacrifices, they're the ones who went into the temple to burn incense. Second thing we noticed about them was that they were righteous and faithful to the Mosaic law. That means they did everything correctly or as, as, as much as they could, they obeyed what they were supposed to do as, as lined out by Moses in the Old Testament. The third thing that we noticed was that they were barren and that they were without a child. That means they were seen as cursed, uh, according to many different people in the Old Testament. So it's interesting, when we look at Zechariah and, and Elizabeth, it seems like they were like mostly the perfect couple. They, they were the Levites, they married, you know, she was a daughter of Aaron, who was the, the priest. He was in that, you know, priesthood. He was burning incense. He was part of all that. They obeyed God. They were righteous. It was like the perfect couple, you know. I'm trying to think of a perfect couple. It's like uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce, right? Like, like people who are like the top of their game, you know. They do everything right, and they have multi-million dollar enterprise, and they're at the top of their music and all this kind of stuff. The perfect couple, with the exception, one thing is that they were childless. They couldn't have children. That was one thing out of their perfect life. After everything that was going on, going for them in their lives, they couldn't have a child. And that was what gave Zechariah doubt. And we see that in verse 18. It says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? When the angel, he promised that he would have a child. He said, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the New American Standard Bible says, Zechariah said to the angel, let's read it together, how will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So there, right there in the beginning, you see Zechariah is already starting to doubt. He's already starting to question, how is this going to happen? What, is, what does all this mean? How is this going to be possible? I don't see it. So in this passage, we want to look at five sources of doubt. And the five sources are going to help us to learn about 
what Zechariah was going through and how we can learn about it. So I want to go through these five sources and talk about them one by one. Number one is that one source of doubt is when we think that we're doing all the right things. It's when we think we're doing all the right things. In verse 6, it talks about how they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. I think if our paradigm, if our worldview is works-oriented, it's based on the paradigm of human effort and ability, then almost not 100% we will have many doubts. Like, let me explain what I mean by this. The more that we think that we're doing right, the more we will doubt God in life as life progresses. Because the works-oriented mindset is says, if I do more things, if I pray, if I read my Bible, if I uh, am I morally good, if I love people, then good things should happen to me, right? If I put in a lot of effort, if I study hard, if I work well, then my boss should recognize me and reward me for my efforts. And so we expect that effort, time, talent, energy, it should produce some kind of result. But how many of us we know life is not linear? How many of us we realize no matter, sometimes no matter how many times we put in the effort and energy, that life doesn't give us the result that we expect or that we want? So what happens when we think that we're doing all the right things, but then life gives us lemons? Something sour and bad and rotten. Well, we start to doubt. We start to ask questions like, what's going on? Why is this happening to me? Why do I deserve something that is bad when I've been doing all the right things? This is the same exact problem that the Pharisees had with Jesus. The Pharisees, they did everything right according to custom, according to the law. They were the teachers of the law. They made up the rules, and they did everything according to that. But when Jesus came and said, you know what, you're not actually living out the law, and things didn't pan out the way that they wanted. In fact, what did that happen? Not only did they doubt Jesus, they were offended by him. They were deeply offended by him because what? They believed everything was based on how well they did something according to the law, according to their moral righteousness. And just like us, sometimes if we are doing all the right things, we think that we're so faithful, it doesn't turn out as we expect it. Somewhere along the lines, we're going to get bitter. Somewhere along the lines, we're going to start to question God and say, God, where are you? Why are you doing it? Maybe the first time, it's like, okay, let me try harder again. Second time around, doesn't go the way we expect it. What happens? We start to question God a little. God, what are you doing? Why, are you, why, why is this happening to me? The third, fourth, fifth time around, that life doesn't go the way that we expect it. And we start to question the very character of God. That's where we start to say, ask these questions. God, are you actually good? God, why does suffering happen to good people? God, why am I not in the place in the future career opportunity that I want to be? God, why is my child like this when we've been doing everything right as parents as we possibly can? And this is the problem, is if we hold this human-centered paradigm, this works-oriented mindset, then we're going to go down a path that is totally against God. We're going to mess up our children with this works-oriented theology. We're going to mess up our future. We're going to, be, we're going to struggle. I, I would say many of us, we're going to be traveling all the holidays away from community. These are the moments that are going to really expose and reveal 
what our paradigm is. Is it really based on us doing all the right things? Or is it based on us really saying, you know what, God, it's not in my control. It's not based on how good I, or well I do things, but it's based on who you are. So one source of doubt is when we think that we're doing all the right things. The second thing is that we assume that this is what we deserve. We assume this is what we deserve. In verse 7, it says, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Like I mentioned before, oftentimes in the Old Testament or before Jesus came, people associated barren, being barren, not being able to have children as a curse from God. And uh, Rachel in the Old Testament was another person who experienced the exact same thing. And in Genesis 30, verse 23, it says, she became pregnant, this is uh, referring to Rachel, and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. So pretty much what she's saying is for you to not be able to have a child, it's a disgrace. It's something that, you know, whether it's you believe it's God cursing you or you did something wrong that you didn't deserve a child, some way, some form, God is punishing you with this punishment. And some of us, we experience these strongholds or, or these trials, and we say, you know what, God, like, I, I don't know why it is that you're punishing me, but I'm just going through this. Some of us, we've been going through the same struggle over and over and over and over again. And it's become so long that we've struggled with it that it just becomes part of our identity. That we start to say things like, oh, I'm always a failure. Or I'm never going to get to that point where I can really trust in God. Or my kids are always going to be this way. Or my GPA is always going to be below 4.0, and there's nothing I could do about it. <laughs> and that's true for most of us here, right? <laughs> One thing I, I would challenge us, especially with during this holiday season, is I would say relationships and health are some of the things that oftentimes we have the least control of, but oftentimes we see the least hope of in because we feel like, okay, this is just my lot, and this is just what God is going to give me. Some of us, we have the sentiment of, you know, uh, those of us who are going to be going home for the holidays, like, oh, my parents are always just going to be this way. This is how my family is always going to be. And some of us, we just struggle with it because we're, we're terrified of going home. We're terrified of dealing with the, con the same conversations. You know, you're, you come home and your parents are like, oh, you look healthier now. <laughs> Did you gain some weight? Like... Stop eating so much, right? Or you come home and your parents ask you, like, oh, so do you have anyone yet? You know, like, are you seeing anyone? What's going on? And you're like, ah, oh, it's the same old thing over and over again. Right? And, it causes, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? There's so many other things that we struggle with, with family and relationships. Or maybe some of our family members, they're going through health problems right now, sicknesses. I don't know for whatever reason, I've just been hearing in our church, there have been so many people who have been struggling with, whether it's like operations or cancer or other things like that. And you're just like, God, like, it's never going to change. And we never have any sense of hope. And we doubt God that he's good. Because we're just like, God, this is just my life. And that's one of the perspectives that we have that's really going to hinder us from saying, you know what, God, I, I want to trust in you. I want to believe that you're good. So first thing is when we think that we're doing all the right things. The second one is that we assume this is what we deserve. The third one is that when we compare and we're focused on ourselves. Verses 11 to 12, it talks about how, the, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear 
fell upon him. I don't know about you, but when Zechariah was going in, he probably wasn't expecting anything. It was probably, okay, this is just my duty, and I'm just going to do my thing. This is according to the custom of the priesthood, and I was just chosen by lot. So I'm going to do my duty, burn my incense, I'll be out, and then I'm going to go home and have a good time with my wife. But all of a sudden, the angel appeared, and he's like, hello. And then Zechariah is freaked out, he's troubled, and fear falls upon him. And rightly so. When people encountered God, they were afraid. We saw that with Moses when uh, God's, uh, Moses wanted to see God's glory, and God said, no, you cannot see my glory because if you do, then you will die. People knew that if they saw God's glory, that they would die because they were so far from God. They were so different from God. Simon Peter was the same. When he met Jesus, when he saw Jesus, and Simon Peter ended up catching a huge batch of fish, and Peter was like, in Luke 5, verse 8, he says, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. Lord, I am a sinful man. So before Jesus came and died for us, this is how we reacted. This is how we related with God. We say, God, I, I can't be with you. I, I'm, I'm nothing compared to you. When I look at myself, I'm focused on myself, I am nothing and I can't possibly come into your presence. But this is the good news of Jesus Christ, is that because we have a relationship with him, that we are now free to enter into the throne of grace. We can approach him with confidence because he's loved us and because he has died for us. And we, he treats us no longer as enemies, but he treats us as friends. I like this quote by Tim Keller. He says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. That's the only person. That's the only person that will possibly wake up a king at 3 a.m., right? Like, my wife, she's the only one who can ask me to bring her breakfast in the morning, the morning I'm preaching a sermon, okay? And I, and I, and I gladly... <laughs> No one else, right? Everyone else, I'm like, please don't bother me. Please don't do anything. Like, stay away. I'm focused right now. But my wife is texting me like, hey, can you bring me something? I'm like, sure. Of course. Amen. Right? And I, and I do it because she's blessed me so much, and there's mutual submission going on. And, you know, this is part of my, my role of being a, a dutiful husband, you know, so... So if I were just focused on myself, right? If we just focus on ourselves and we just compare, like, oh, I'm not good enough. Or I, I'm unworthy to be in God's presence. Or I'm unworthy to know God. Then, of course, we're going to doubt. Of course, we're, gonna be able to say, we're not going to be able to say, yes, God, I believe and I trust in you. But it's when we know that we have that relationship with God because of Jesus Christ, it's going to totally change our perspective. It'll totally change the way that we relate with God and who he is, and how good he's been to us. So the third one is when we compare and focus on ourselves. Fourth one is that when we are driven by fear, I'm not going to rehash this too much, because we already just talked about um, last week how God is faithful even when we are fearful. But what does fear lead to? Fear in and of itself isn't bad. Sometimes it's just a raw emotion that we have when we encounter difficult situations. But when we start to fear consistently, multiple occasions, it's a natural response to who we are, to different circumstances or, or situations, slowly that turns and morphs into doubt. Slowly that begins 
You know, every time we fear, that begins to change into just fearing the circumstance to then fearing the God that you believe is bringing those situations and circumstances. That becomes a deeper sense of doubt. That's another factor that brings us to doubt. So number one was when we think we're doing all the right things. The second is when we assume this is what we deserve. The third one is when we compare and are focused on ourselves. The fourth one is when we are driven by fear. And the fifth one is when we hear about God's promises, but we don't see it lived out in our lives. It's so interesting. In verse 13, the angel tells Zechariah, don't be afraid, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And Zechariah here, he hears God's promises, and not only does he hear God's promises, the angel tells him, your prayer has been heard. But still, Zechariah doubts. And for many of us, our reaction is like, isn't that normal? He hasn't seen the prayer answered yet. He hasn't seen the prayer fulfilled yet. So why would you blame him for doubting? But God doesn't operate in the natural. My question is, why don't we say instead, because God is trustworthy, because he is good, because it's written in his word, that I will believe that will happen. What if we just had a different perspective? I, I have heard a lot of people say this. I don't want to believe or have expectations because if it doesn't happen, then I don't need to get disappointed. Some of you are like, oh, shoot, I, that's me. So many of us, you know, you're, you're asking, you know, like someone asks you, oh, why don't you share a prayer request? Or why don't you pray a prayer for that situation, you're like, oh, no, it's okay, just pray for me. Or some of us are like, oh, what are you expecting for this event? Or let's say the retreat. And you're like, no, I don't really like having expectations because if God doesn't answer or I don't experience God, then I don't have to be discouraged. It's just better not to have any expectation. If God does something, then I can praise God. If God doesn't do anything, then I don't have to praise God. <laughs> How many of us, you know what, it's not so much about whether it's natural or not, but it's really the, the, the perspective or the attitude in our heart that says, I don't actually really want to believe that God could do something bigger. Some of us, we don't believe in God's promises because we don't want to get hurt. It becomes more about ourselves, uh, protecting ourselves, protecting our emotions, protecting the potential for failure. But how many of us, we know that it's when we are most self-protective, that is when we are most faithless. That is when doubt really starts to creep in. So when we are trying to protect ourselves and our expectations, that doubt really begins to take over. I wanted to address some of us, we're thinking about the retreat, and we're like, oh, yeah, it's another retreat. I've been there. I've done that. Last year, it wasn't so great. This guest speaker was okay. He was all right. Kind of intellectual funny, but he's, he's okay. This next one, he's, he's the brother of the old guy, so I don't know what I'm going to expect. People say he's a little bit smarter, but yeah, we'll see. And you're like, yeah, I don't know if I want to apply. I don't, wanna, I don't know if I want to sign up because I don't, I don't want to be let down again. I don't want to have my expectations dashed. It's like $535. Look, how many McDonald's meals can I have with that kind of money, you know? And... <laughs> Amen. Amen. And I want to challenge some of us 
if you are in that attitude of protecting yourself so much, then of course you're not going to experience God. You should never expect to experience God if you have that kind of attitude. Because that very self-protective mindset that's going to prevent you from experiencing God in any context because you never want to take a step of faith to say, you know what, God, I want to believe in who you are and how good you are in your character. And it's as I'm believing by faith that that's when I'm going to experience you in a powerful way. I want to challenge us, some of us to really commit to signing up for the retreat, not because we're self-protective, or, but because we're saying, you know what, God, I want to have faith that you're going to meet me in a powerful way. Because all the ways that I haven't been growing, I've been struggling, I'm believing by faith that you're going to encounter me. You're going to pour out your love and your blessing in ways that I never would have experienced before. Some of us are like, still, I don't know. Like, we'll see. You know, your life group leaders message you. And like, hey, are you thinking about retreat? Like, yeah, I'm kind of thinking about it. And it's no answer. Like, okay, so are you going to think about signing up? Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I, I want, maybe this will make it more relatable for you. It's kind of like praying about a relationship with that guy or that girl. But then you're like, yeah, I'm not really sure if it's going to work out. I don't really know if I like them or not. And you're here thinking and asking for prayer, like, please, Lord, give me a guy. Bring that knight in shining armor. Please, Lord, I'm open. I'm ready. And then you're like, oh, I, don't really, I don't really know if you're going to provide. Like, you're defeating yourself. And that, maybe that's the reason why you're not really open to meeting people. Maybe that's the why that you're single right now. Amen? I'm not saying that God is going to, we want all of you to be married and maybe marry each other someday. If if God were to tell you who you're going to marry, you'd be like, hex no right now, right? I'm not saying just because you have this attitude, God is going to provide for you a spouse and like within the next year or whatever. But sometimes it's our very attitude that prevents us from really having faith and seeing things move forward. And so, sign up for the retreat, okay? (laughs) So we covered five things. We said, number one is what? When we think that we're doing all the right things, number two is when we assume this is what we deserve, number three, when we compare and are focused on ourselves, number four, when we're driven by fear, number five, when we hear about God's promises, but we don't see it. There's a... There's a common thread through all of these. And doubt isn't just some innocent feeling. I think some of us were like, oh, I'm just doubting. And it's like, oh, it's not a big deal. And there's some element of it. Just because you doubt doesn't mean you're a bad person or you're sinful. But somewhere along the line, extended amounts of doubt and questioning the, the very character of God, it's not so much just an innocent feeling anymore. And I, and I like what John MacArthur says because he addresses this. He says, for some reason, we think of doubt and worry as small sins. But when a Christian displays unbelief or an inability to cope with life, he is saying to the world, my God cannot be trusted. And that kind of disrespect makes one guilty of a fundamental error, the heinous sin of dishonoring God. And that is no small sin. Your doubt, doubt itself is not a bad thing. In fact, sometimes doubt can cause you to say, you know what, God, I want to get to know you more. Help me to find out what my foundation of my faith is. So doubt in and of itself is not wrong. But it's when doubt becomes unbelief. It becomes questioning the very character, the very nature of God. It becomes 
a heinous sin of dishonoring God himself. So when we begin to believe in God of a different kind, a God that is not good, a God that is not just, a God that is not all-present, that is not all-knowing, that is called idolatry. That is the sin that many of us contain within our hearts. So what is that sin? What is the common denominator between the five things that we talked about? Now think about it. When we think that we're doing all the right things, what is that called? It's called self-righteousness. When we assume that this is what we deserve, it's called self-condemnation. When we compare and we're focused on ourselves, it's called self-sufficiency and self-centeredness. And that's also what we're driven by fear. And then when we hear about God's promises but we don't see it, it's called self-protection. And so when you link all these things together, you realize and you start to see that all of the causes of doubt really comes down back to us. It's really a self-centeredness, a selfishness, a self-righteousness, a self-condemnation, a self-sufficiency, a self-protection. That's the root cause of why we struggle with the things that we struggle. And this is the biggest problem with us. And John MacArthur, another quote, he continues on, and he kind of hits it on the nail. He says, man's basic problem is preoccupation with self. He is innately beset with narcissism, a condition named after the Greek mythological character Narcissus, who spent his life admiring his reflection in a pool of water. In the final analysis, every sin results from preoccupation with self. We sin because we are totally selfish, totally devoted to ourselves, rather than to God and to others. And I think if we think about it, that's many of us in this room. We are so preoccupied with ourselves. We are so focused on ourselves. We are so into ourselves that we cannot think outside of ourselves to say, you know what, God? Maybe all my doubts really come from my selfishness. Maybe what I really need is to repent, to confess that, man, I've been so selfish, so self-absorbed. I can't think outside of my own little world. But there is a bigger God. There's a bigger world. There's so many other things happening outside of myself that God in his love, he came and he gave his son for me that would free me from my own selfishness because of his grace. And that itself is like, wow, amazing. And for some of us, we need to revisit that, revisit the gospel to say, you know what, God, it's not about me. It's not about my preferences or my wants or my righteousness, but it's about you. And I just wanted to add a side note. I know so many of us here might be struggling with intellectual doubts. And you're saying, you know what, Pastor Bo, like, all you're talking about is like circumstantial stuff right now. It doesn't really apply to me. And I'm struggling with these intellectual doubts of like the existence of God and the truth of Scripture and all these kind of things. And which I'm saying, that's okay. If you're genuinely struggling with those things, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to judge you. But if you're genuinely intellectually doubtful and you're genuinely intellectually seeking after God, then what I would expect if you're genuinely being selfless, it's not a selfish issue, then you will do your research, ask the questions, be proactive, go online, find whatever arguments that you're going back and forth with, and then come to a conclusion. But I want to challenge some of us. Some of us have been thinking, oh, I'm an intellectual, intellectual doubter, and you sit there and you kind of like mope around, you don't do anything about it, and you're just like, oh, I doubt if God is really good. But you're not really seeking after whether or not God is really good. You haven't looked into any literature or anything like that. You haven't talked to anyone about it. Then I would say that you are just selfish. 
then you are the very cause. Your own self-pity is the very reason why you are in the situation that you're in. And I know some of you might not like to hear this right now, but I'm speaking this truth and love because if you're genuinely intellectually curious, then your attitude will be completely different. But maybe it's the exposure of the sin, the self-centeredness in our hearts that God is trying to reveal in us to help us to turn and to say, you know what, God, you're actually still good. And so as we think about what causes doubt, we realize ultimately comes down to the self. So the what, where does that leave us? It leaves us in a very hopeless situation, but of course God doesn't leave us in this situation. Not only do we see what causes doubt, but we see how God uh, shows us and provides for us what reassures our faith. So we're going to continue on in the second point, what reassures our faith. We'll read uh, verses 19 to 25, and then we'll skip down and read 57 to 66. In verse 19, it says, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept on making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. We'll skip down to verse 57. It says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. They rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said of here, None of your relatives is called by his name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And they, he, asked her for a writing, he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open, his tongue loose, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through the, all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. When we look at the second part of the passage, we ask the question, What is it that can really reassure our doubts? If there's so many factors, five of them, and that's not even an exhaustive list, I'm sure there's other things that really cause us to doubt, then what possibly could help us to reassure our faith? And right here in this passage, we notice three things that God provides to reassure us. And as I was studying this passage, just looking at the whole story of Zechariah, I was like, wow, it's not just this passage, but the connections between and all the things that happen. I'm like, wow, it's unmistakable, unmistakable. God's fingerprints are all over this. So the first thing of the things that God provides to reassure us is God's presence. God's presence. When we think of this passage, we, we, we look at it and we look at Zechariah, and my question is, do you think that God knew that Zechariah doubted the whole time and it was just a setup? Some of us, we hate that, right? Your life, life group leaders like, ask you something, ask you to do something, and you're like, oh, you're going to set me up for something later, right? They're going to they're gonna talk to us afterward, and oh, my God. But God knows everything, right? So, of course... If we think of it from the perspective that God knew Zechariah was doubting the whole time and he wanted to use it to grow his faith, then we read this passage in a whole different way. 
Let's read verse 13 again and read it more clear, closely in verse 13 and then read along with me in the yellow. It says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. That one little phrase, those couple words, for your prayer has been heard, what does it reveal about Zechariah? What was he praying for? Some of us were like on the, uh, we just started a, uh, my mind is blanking on IPT. What does it stand for? Intercessory <laughs> Prayer Team. <laughs> and I, sorry guys, I'm leading the team and I forgot what we're called. <laughs> you know, you, you really think that we're praying all the time, like so holy, praying for all the church. And we are, we're praying for all the church. We're praying for all the lifers and ministry teams. But somewhere along the line, you know, you know what happens when you're in that prayer time and, you, you know, you, like the life group leader shares a prayer request? What happens? You inadvertently start praying about whom? Yourself, right? I would say 90% of our prayers are all about ourselves, whether for better or for worse. And so that was the case with Zechariah. He wasn't praying, like, for the redemption of Israel. He wasn't praying, like, Lord, bless this temple and make the Israelites prosperous. The angel says to him, your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. That means Zechariah was praying for what? A child. He was chosen by Lot, like drawing straws. He was picked to go into the temple and he used the whole time to pray for himself. And you wonder, did God, did God make a mistake? Maybe God should have picked someone holier to go into the temple instead. But you realize nothing is a mistake according to God. Let's read verse 8 to 11. Again, we'll read it carefully in the yellow. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. My question, was it a coincidence that Zechariah was chosen by Lot? Was it any coincidence that he was the one at that moment, at that particular time, to go into the temple to burn incense to pray his prayer that he prayed? What if God allowed the very thing to happen to bring Zechariah into his presence so that he could experience something totally different? And you think, oh, that's just Zechariah, but no, this happens all the time throughout the Bible. Some of you know the story of Job, and you're like, wow, Job, that was such a sad story. Because what happens is he was this wealthy man. He was righteous before God, but God allows Satan to take so many things away from Job, not only his possessions and his family, but his own health. And at the very end, what happens to Job? He complains, he laments, he accuses God, and God, he doesn't have to do anything, but God, in his great mercy, he comes and he meets Job. God's presence meets Job. He rebukes Job, but he meets Job all the same. And it totally changes Job's perspective. It completely changes his whole outlook on, on life and why all the things happen. Elijah was the same. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament. He thought he was the only faithful prophet left in Israel. And he was lamenting and complaining to God. And he ran away because he thought he was the only one left. And he thought he was looking for God in a fire and a wind and all these big things, but God, what did he do? He spoke to him in a whisper. God's presence changed Elijah's perspective and helped him to realize God is still faithful. 
One more example, Thomas, doubting Thomas. Many of us grew up with doubting Thomas. We're like, gosh, Thomas, you're so, such a doubter. What's wrong with you? <laughs> but what happens when Thomas is like, I won't believe until I see the holes in his hands? And what happens? Jesus is like, hello, I'm here. You can feel it right now. And then Thomas is like, my Lord and my God, you know, I repent. And so all throughout the Bible, you see that God's presence, he comes in those very exact moments. He arranges everything intentionally, sometimes allows us to doubt because it exposes and reveals something about our hearts, only to give us his presence so that what? It will rebuke us, help us to realize our unbelief, but then turn back to him. Because God is always looking for us to repent and to come back to him. That's what his presence does. My question, when is the last time you set aside time just to be in God's presence? Through the midst of your doubts, when is the last time you just said, God, I just want to meet you? Some of us were so busy during this season. We're buying gifts. Some of us like, oh, I'm so busy buying gifts for Christian action for the, the kids, you know? Which, by the way, go pick up a name tag. <laughs> or, you know, like, oh, I, I have kids and, like, you know, all these students, they don't even know what busy means. I'm really busy, and I don't have any time, not even enough time to spend time with God. Or uh, some of us are like, oh, I have so many homework assignments, and finals are coming up, and all these online finals, and I'm stressed out, and like, oh, my God, I have no time, even though we spend most of the time watching YouTube and procrastinating, things like that. Or trying to find that significant other, right, going to the networking events, and that's why we're in Focus Life Group, and... Is our excuse really we're too busy? Or is it maybe when we haven't really prioritized being with God in his presence? Because inevitably, when something, when we have a little bit of free time, when things get canceled, when we're on the MTR, we, we're in transit, we inevitably use that time to do what? Usually it's a combination of social media, chatting, doing other things that are not really productive. We usually fill it with something else to keep us busy rather than saying, God, I just want to come, come near to you. That's why we're doing things like One Desire Fast. And some of you are like, I'm excited for One Desire Fast, but not really excited. You're like, oh, my God, it's all these things. But what if, it's, what if we had a change in perspective and say, you know what, God, I want to be in your presence. I, I, I can't wait to be with you. I can't wait to come and pray. And, you know, even though I'm not looking forward to not eating meat or what other, whatever else, but your presence is so much better. It's so much greater. Connecting you with is so much more fulfilling than doing those other things. Can some of us, you know, say, no more, no more Taylor Swift, no more YouTube, social media. Like some of us, we got our, uh, our 2019 Spotify premium. <laughs> like, you know, you're like, oh, praise God, my CCM, Christian Contemporary Music, was top, right? That, I'm spending time with God, all right? Like, 60,000 minutes over the year, right? <clears throat> but you're not really spending time with God. You know, I see those other things. Other, no, I'm just kidding. You don't, have to just, you don't have to just listen to Christian music. But the point is, how focused and how intentional are we about saying, you know what, I'm going to clear out some time in my life for God. And like Annie mentioned earlier, we're having a congregational retreat this coming February. 
And I want to challenge some of us. We've been so like, oh, I don't really have time. That's going to be during midterm season. That's when my projects are going on. That's when kids have school and busy and stuff like that. Can you sacrifice? Can you commit? It's not even a sacrifice. Can you commit two and a half days to say, you know what, God? I'm going to clear out my schedule so I can be in your presence, so I can be with the people of God, the community, to say, you know what, God? I want to experience you because, man, there's so many doubts in my life that I need your presence to overcome some of those things. I want to challenge us to really clear out our lives, whether it's ODF, whether it's the retreat, whether it's just taking this break, this holiday season, instead of just binge-watching Netflix or playing video games or just traveling the whole time. Maybe during your travel, you sat out a day to say, you know what, God, I'm just going to be in my hotel room and just pray the whole day. I want to challenge you to take a personal retreat while you have the time. God's presence is one thing that really reassures our faith. The second thing, and we'll go through these next a little bit more quickly. The second one is God's promises. God's promises is what reassures our faith. We notice several promises that God gave to Zechariah in verses 13 to 17. It says, they will have a son. The son will be named John. Many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great before the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit with power, and he will turn people to the Lord. And there are two ways that God's promises to Zechariah could have been a reassurance. Either the first option is God gives us the promise. It's the promise itself that gives us the reassurance. Sometimes it is. It's just the truth that we need to be reminded of that gives us the reassurance instead of going into those doubts. I don't know how many times I'm sitting there at work and I'm just like, God, I'm so frustrated and it's hard to not have anxiety. It's hard to believe that you're going to work something out. And I've been doing this thing um, once uh, every single day. I'll just take one psalm and just read that psalm throughout the day, maybe three times throughout the day, and I'll just open that psalm. And You know, it's incredible. I don't, the psalms are so, so powerful because it's just raw expressions of people's relationship with God. And as I'm reading through that psalm and meditating, I'm like, wow, yeah, God, this is how I feel, but yet you are still good. And it's those, that, that word, God's word, his reminders of his word that helps me to say, you know what, God, okay, I can go on again. Because it's in those daily moments that are the biggest challenges for us to really trust and believe in God. Because there's so many lies going on in our heads. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 to 5 in the New Living Translation says, We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture the rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. Thank you. Praise the Lord. So I'm reading it too fast for you guys to read it with me. Right? God's mighty weapons is his word, his truth, his promises. If we don't have his promises, then of course we're just going to be left with doubt. And we need to get into his word. Starting in January 1st, we're going to be, or December 31st, we're going to be finishing our two-year Bible reading plan. And then starting in January, we're actually going to start it over again. A couple of reasons is because we believe that the Bible is so important for us. And many of you have just joined our church kind of halfway through and you started it, but you're like, oh, I really want to read the whole Bible. It's so important to have a daily intake of Bible to help us to really know God's word. That's what we're doing over a period of two years. That Every single day there's a couple chapters. It's not too long. It just takes about five to seven minutes just to read through it and to say, you know what, God, I want to know your word in a deeper way. And that's going to help us to battle through some of these doubts. So God giving us his promises and that second one is God fulfilling his promises. 
is when God fulfills his promises that gives us an extra boost of encouragement that we didn't have otherwise. When you think about the ways that God fulfills our promise, most of us, we're just like, oh, I, God, I don't see how you're fulfilling your promises. But I would encourage and challenge some of us. Maybe it's because we just don't remember some of the prayers that we prayed early on. Like, think about how much time passed between when Zechariah saw the vision, heard the promises, and when those promises were fulfilled. <coughs> when John the Baptist was actually born. Minimally nine months, right? Like, biologically, it has to happen that way. Unless there's a miracle birth, happens in one month, and somehow the embryo matures and, you know, all that kind of stuff, <laughs> right? But it minimally, it has to be nine months. So for Zechariah to be able to say, you know what? The promises are fulfilled then he had to have remembered the vision from nine months ago that God was faithful. He said these things would happen. And you notice so many things happened. At least the first three promises were fulfilled. Not only that Elizabeth conceived, she gave birth, became a son. Not only that, but all of her neighbors and relatives, they rejoiced with her. That was a promise that the angel gave. And not only that, but that he would be named John. And so when Zechariah had to hear that and be like, oh, wow, God, you have been faithful to your promises. And for many of us, maybe we forgot the prayers that we prayed nine months ago, a year ago, two years ago. That's why we need to spend some time reflecting what were the promises that God has given to us in the past? What were the prayers that we lift up? How can we reflect back and think through how has God been faithful to us? And I encourage us, if we do that, then we're going to come back in January ready and just seeing how good God has been to us and ready to go into the new year. Third thing and last thing is God's purpose. God provides us his purposes. Sometimes understanding why God's greater purpose is one of the most helpful ways to overcome doubt. Because when you're going through a situation, you don't understand why it's happening. It's so easy to question God. But when you see the bigger plan or the greater scheme of things, and you're like, oh, God, yeah, okay, I can still trust in you. Zechariah might have been wondering, why did I have to go through all that? Why did the angel have to come Freak me out, and then not only freak me out, but why did he have to make me mute? I don't know if anyone, you noticed that. We, we skipped over a little bit, but in verse 20, he says, You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. If all the things, okay, God, why? Like, okay, I know I'm afraid, I know I'm doubtful, but do you have to punish me to make me not be able to speak for whatever indefinite amount of time? You know, what, what's the point in that? Well, let's look at verses 59 and 60 again to see what happened and what the reason that God did that was. It says, And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. They were the neighbors and the relatives. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. It's interesting that it's the mother who answers. In the message translation it says, But his mother intervened. In the NIV, it says, but his mother spoke up. And why is that important? Why was it Elizabeth? Why was she the one who was the one who named him John, or at least spoke up to say, no, he should be called John? Maybe because Zechariah was mute and he couldn't say anything. I don't know. Maybe he was sitting in the back like, right, and no one could see him. Like, no, he shouldn't be called Zechariah. He should be called John. Maybe he couldn't express himself. And so that's why Elizabeth had to do it. I, we can only guess that some point in their conception process that 
Zechariah told Elizabeth somehow through writing or whatever, like, this is what happened. I saw a vision, and then the baby's supposed to be named John. I can't tell you why. I don't even know why, but that's just what has to happen. We don't know exactly what happens. But what Elizabeth did was to help fulfill the promise of God that was given. And maybe that was the very reason why Zechariah needed to be mute. Maybe the very reason Zechariah needed to be mute was so that Elizabeth could exhibit faith. That the very doubt that Zechariah had, she heard it secondhand. She didn't experience the vision. She didn't hear the angel. She didn't know all this. She could only hear it secondhand from Zechariah. But for her to believe, for her to have faith, for her to say, you know what? I trust that this is true and this is what God is doing in our lives. Maybe God used her. Maybe God gave her the opportunity to exhibit faith. Because that was the, the blessing, that was the promise of faith that God wanted to be on John the Baptist through this whole process of him being born to fulfill the promises that God has had. Maybe that was God's greater purpose. Now I'm wondering if there are some situations in our lives that God is intentionally causing us distress or frustration or discouragement because he's challenging us to elicit faith in a different way. And maybe we don't even realize it. Maybe you're not mute, but let's say it's just been a dry spell. Maybe you're going through some difficult time. Maybe there are different things happening in your family, but this is the very moment that God wants you to elicit faith. I mean, this is the very moment that God wants you to go out and be bold with your family, to share Christ's love with them because they're, they're pre-Christian, because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. Maybe he wants to fulfill his purposes through us, and that's his greater purpose. And that will elicit faith from us as well. And that's what we've been saying, even as a church, we've been seeing this happen. That through all the situation in Hong Kong with the protests, it's, it's really been God's graciousness and his love for us. That maybe, just maybe, because we've been praying for us as a church to be able to reach out to different groups of people, whether it's people from Hong Kong locally, or I was even part of a Focus in the Covenant gathering, we're able to reach out to a lot of people from mainland China that we'll have so many people all together in one place that otherwise we never would have been able to meet and reach out to. Like maybe that was God's greater purpose, one of his purposes for our church through this season. And that gives us faith to say, you know what, God, you're working. You're blessing us in our church. I just want to close out with this last verse, uh, Luke 1, 67 to 79. This is Zechariah's response in light of all the things that happened, because he experienced God's presence, he experienced God's promise, and he saw God's purpose, that his response is totally different than when he first encountered the angel. It's a little bit long, but I wanted to read it. I want us to read it because when you just see his perspective, it's so different. In verse 67, it says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant. And the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days, and you child, he's speaking to John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord 
to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah, in this prophetic word, he talks about how he sees how all the events leading up to the birth of John the Baptist is so that he could prepare the, the way for Jesus Christ. Everything that happened is so that he could prepare the way for Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the ultimate hope that we have. Above all other doubts, above all circumstances, above all intellectual questions, Jesus Christ is the only way that we have a greater hope in our lives. And it's amazing because he realized he didn't deserve anything. We don't deserve anything. In fact, in all our doubts, we realize we're so self-centered, so self-focused, so selfish. But it's what God has been doing, how he's faithful regardless of who we are, and how he still gave his son. He still gave his son in spite of our faithlessness to somehow redeem us and allow us to have hope, to allow us to have hope and faith in spite of our doubts, in spite of the ways that we are unfaithful. And that's why the one thing for us this morning is that God exposes our doubt to elevate our faith. He uses in the midst of our doubt to elevate, to point us back to the Savior Jesus Christ who is our ultimate hope in the midst of the situation. I want to give us some next steps for this morning to close out. Number one is repent of your self-centeredness. Just repent. I think for some of us, for many of us, those five things, maybe some of those really resonated with you. I think we need to begin to repent because all of those things correlate to some aspect of self-centeredness or self-protection or self-condemnation. Whatever it is, it comes down to ourself. We need to repent to say, you know what, God, I've been so focused on myself. I've been totally oblivious of what you've been doing, and I need to repent. Second thing is reflect in God's presence on God's promises and purposes. I think those three things are the things that God uses in our lives to help us to come back through that process of repentance. Maybe it, it'll take some time. Like I mentioned earlier, take a personal retreat. Take a day, a couple days, a weekend trip, whatever you need, just to spend some time alone, to reflect, to think through, God, what is it that you've done? What are your promises? What promises have you fulfilled in me? And what purpose are you using it for in the future? And lastly, shameless plug, register for the congregational retreat. Okay? Because I would say all of these things, you're going to experience it at the retreat. I know some of us, the holidays are, for whatever reason, even busier than the regular rest of the year. And so we just need to clear out that, that weekend, February 14th to 16th or so. To say Friday, Saturday, Sunday, God, I just want to dedicate that to you. And I want to believe that you're going to speak to me in a powerful way as, as we're moving forward together as a church. Can we stand together and we'll close out in response? Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.